coming up on Harvard Chan this week in health, what can public health learn from the design world? Design doesn't look for the truth or the perfect answer. Design looks for a better answer than the current situation. In this week's episode, a leading public health expert and a leading design expert share what they've learned from each other and how the principles of design can be applied to address some of the world's most complex public health challenges. Design isn't a substitute for what we do already in public health. It's not a substitute for statistics. It's not a substitute for epidemiology uh, or economics. It's a complement to those things because all of them have their shortcomings. And public health has got to go beyond the shortcomings of its traditional areas of study and has got to bring in new tools to move the needle further. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. Ashish Jha was skeptical the first time he heard Patrick Whitney speak. Jha is the director of the Harvard Global Health Institute and dean for global strategy at the Harvard Chan School. Whitney is professor in residence in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard Chan School, and he's one of the world's leading design experts. Whitney previously served as dean of the Institute of Design at the Illinois Institute of Technology, where Jha heard Whitney speak about design's approach to health problems. That initial skepticism gave way to enthusiasm and eventually partnership, as Jha learned how the perspective of the design field could be useful in addressing a range of public health issues. In 2017, Jha and Whitney taught a class together, Design of Social Innovation, which asked students to use design methods to find ways for the World Health Organization to more effectively manage disease outbreaks. That class is running again this semester, this time focusing on smart cities. We wanted to learn more about this partnership between John and Whitney and how lessons from design can be used to address issues ranging from asthma to the opioid epidemic to the future of hospitals. So we partnered with Stephanie Friedhoff, the Assistant Director of Communication at the Harvard Global Health Institute, to produce a really fascinating interview with John Whitney. A key takeaway from the conversation is that design's value really comes from the fact that it focuses on human behavior, providing insights into better ways to implement a public health program, or even just finding ways to make it easier for people to take medication. But first, Friedhoff started the conversation by asking Ja to recall that first encounter with Whitney and to explain that initial skepticism. Take a listen. Well, thank you again, Baus, for being here and yeah. doing the podcast with us. Ashish, I'm going to start with you. Um, our topic today is what can design do for public health? What did you first think when you heard about this idea of bringing a design expert to help with public health problems? Yeah, so my first real encounter with design was a few years ago when I had a chance to visit with Patrick in Chicago. And uh, I arrived that morning, I remember it very clearly, and I remember Patrick standing up and talking about approaches that design takes to solving problems. And I would say about 10 seconds into his talk, I started feeling very skeptical. And as he continued, I got more and more skeptical. And about five, seven minutes in, I couldn't hold back anymore and I had to raise my hand and, and ask. And let me explain the skepticism. You know, so much of what I have cared about, what many of us care about in public health, is about bringing evidence, bringing science and data um, to moving away from uh, solving problems by saying, hey, what was, how does this make me feel? Do, do, well, I feel like vaccines are unnatural and cause health problems. Well, I understand, but the evidence and the science and data are very clear that vaccines are safe and effective. Um, and so what I initially perceived in listening to Patrick was something that felt very antith antithetical um, to what I think is fundamental to public health. 
And so I raised my hand and asked him about it. Um, and I hope I did it respectfully, Patrick. Um, you did. Uh, but, you know, that was the skepticism. And I'm, a, I'm an empiricist. And, you know, my, even my little tagline is, you know, an ounce of evidence is worth a thousand pounds of opinion. Um, and this felt like anti-evidence to me. And it worried me. Patrick, how did you experience that encounter and the questions that you got from Ashish there? Well, a lot of people are skeptical about design because of lack of evidence. Uh, you weren't able to make the dinner the night before, but David Gergen was in the room at dinner and asked uh, what was the reading we had done to as background material for work we had done on uh, helping the aged live more graceful lives in Hong Kong. And my answer is we didn't do any reading to begin with uh, because there was too much to read about what the funders assumed the problem was, which was housing. It would have taken us a year to read about housing for the elderly in China. And what we did is interviewed experts and then went out and met with elderly people. And we rapidly found out that housing wasn't their big problem. Housing was a problem, but it wasn't the sole problem. And the last thing they wanted was a elderly ghetto. So we, in working with them and doing day-in-the-life studies, we changed the questions from what housing do they need to how do they want to live. And housing was part of that. The, the difference is, is that empirical evidence is wonderful when you've got problems that can be solved in a deterministic way where there's a right answer. But there's so many things in daily life that whether we don't have evidence about how people feel about getting older, or we don't have evidence about how people shop when they're elderly, um, that those issues can be overlooked if all you look at is the existing literature. Ashish, is it this kind of argument that changed your mind, or what, what made you? You know, as I went through the day, and it's interesting, because even by the end of the day, I was feeling um, a little less strident, shall we say. Uh, but you were still skeptical when I visited you in Harvard absolutely, months later. Absolutely. No, and and uh, obviously, I have uh, my skepticism has given way to uh, real enthusiasm. Uh, but uh, that journey has been a long one. And, and has been a considered and, and deliberate one. Um, I'll tell you the, the, the sort of the initial kind of crack in my thinking came sort of later that morning. I was watching a presentation uh, of a project that uh, Patrick's team had done with another uh, professor there where they looked at kids who kept coming back to the emergency department uh, with asthma exacerbations. And they looked at the fact that, look, look, we know how to prevent asthma exacerbations. These kids and their parents were getting the right information. We had the evidence, we had the science, and yet it wasn't quite working. And what they did is they went into people's homes, they figured out how people were living, they understood why the evidence wasn't translating. And of course, it made eminent sense to me that so many public health problems are actually about behavior and about um, how people live lives and what they value, and just walking in and saying, you need evidence, and just we'll give you the best scientific evidence, it just doesn't work enough. I mean, it does for some people, but for very many people it doesn't. Even the vaccine example I use, the, the evidence is extremely clear, but there's still people who are hesitant about vaccines, who don't quite, aren't quite ready to accept it. 
And it, it hit me that this wasn't a classic kind of scientific problem to solve. It was a human behavioral problem to solve. And the way that design people thought about these issues um, seemed to have some importance uh, that we as public health officials often uh, didn't pay attention to. And, and that's got what got me initially thinking. Staying with the asthma problem for a minute, what the team noticed as they went in was that the problem was holes in the wall where rodents and insects, triggers for asthma, were living. But as far as we could tell, holes in the wall isn't part of the protocol for treatment prescribed by the NIH. Um, so the, in a sense, the medical doctors couldn't look at it. It's not part of the protocol. They didn't even know about it. Whereas it was obvious to us, one of the first things to do is get some saran wrap and plug those holes today and then come back tomorrow and do it with plaster. So this is a traditional, I would say, problem in global health, right? That we provide people with drugs, for example, but then they don't have enough food to eat to actually absorb the drugs in the way that they're meant to be absorbed. So um, if you could, Patrick, talk a little bit about how are you helping people in public health see more of the problem or, t or take a bigger look? How does design help us do that? Well, in the class, we give them problems that are not, that don't have a definitive right answer. Their design doesn't look for the truth or the perfect answer. Design looks for a better answer than the current situation and believes that the answer would be better yet if we had a little more time to keep working on it. Um, that's a fundamental difference. When you're not looking for the truth, you can get to better much quicker. So I give these problems to the students. For example, um, uh, providing healthy, tasty food to people who don't have enough food in the Boston area. Um, that's a complex problem, but it's not a complex problem like a complex problem in physics or chemistry or physiology. It's a complex problem where you don't have all the information. And we give them frameworks for dealing with that ambiguity so that they aren't making uneducated guesses, but they're making informed guesses, not based on scientific evidence, but evidence about the project. I think of it as, I don't know whether this is the correct way of thinking of it or not, but I think of public health dealing with the, deals with problems with the rigor of the general. It looks at massive amounts of data very rigorously and defines principles. Design looks at the rigor of the particular. We look at how people are make breakfast, how they send their kids off to school, how they use the atomizer in the morning or not. Um, you know, one, one kid wasn't using the atomizer because his parents didn't have time to do it because they had to walk him to school because there were gangs in the neighborhood and they had to trade off where the parents said it is, I know this is bad for my kid not to use the atomizer for the long term, but it's it's life-threatening life for him not to be walked to school every day. Immediate life is more important than that. Yes, yes exactly. Which is a great example also for global health problems. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you, you deal with that? Yeah. Let's back up for a moment, Patrick. You are teaching a class yes. right now at the School of Public Health. This is the second time you're teaching it. Tell us a bit about who, who takes this class. Why are the students there? It's mostly students from public health. 
but there are students from Kennedy, engineering, business, uh, Tufts School of Public Policy is, has students in it. And uh, there are about 25 or 30 students in the class. And they are accepting the level of ambiguity and the open-ended exploration very well. They're enjoying it. Now, it's fair to say they were given fair warning before they signed up. Um, but people from a technical background, science or engineering, who enjoy ambiguity, do wondrous work in design. Uh, now, maybe the majority of them don't enjoy ambiguity, but those who do love design. So these students are having a great time, and uh, they work in small teams and projects and get small lectures to catalyze those projects. It's not an issue of me relaying information to them. It's an issue of me creating a context where they develop their own content and their own answers to the problems. Ashish, you just t talk to the students in the class. You talk presumably to other people at the School of Public Health about why, you, you know, why this is important. Sort of, what, what are some of the things that you, you tell them and, and sort of, obviously there's a lot of people who don't like ambiguity or uncertainty, which, you know, are at the core of a lot of these complex problems. Yeah. How do you help people understand this? You know, the approach I've taken, and, and it's been interesting, learning design from Patrick, uh, I've started seeing its application in more and more public health problems. Uh, arguably in almost every public health problem, there is a, a uh, an application of design. And what I've done is try to lay those out for people. Uh, try to lay it out in class. The fact, um, you know, that just recently, for instance, you know, President Trump uh, announced that he wants America to get to zero new HIV infections by 2030. Well, if you think about the science uh, behind HIV infections, we have great diagnostics, we have great treatments, Policy is mostly good in that we now give people access to treatments. Uh, most people have uh, access to drugs. And yet, our best estimate is that half of people who have HIV in America are uh, on drugs in a way that's truly suppressing their viral load. 50% efficacy in the context of getting all the science right. That's crazy. And so then when you start taking apart why has this been so hard, you realize there's a whole set of issues where design would be actually extremely helpful. Um, a lot of people don't take their medicines. And, you know, the simplistic and wrong answer is to say, well, those people are not very smart or they're not, they don't care about their health. No, that's all wrong. We know that's wrong. Um, and there is no one answer for why people don't take their medicines. Um, design lets you get into that and understand human behavior and the ambiguity on the trade-off people make and gives you new tools to begin to move that needle. Um, I could, we could talk about TB, we could talk about smoking, we could talk about uh, almost every major public health problem. And you end up with, with uh, all of these elements. And what I've tried to convey to, what I try to convey to your students in class, Patrick, and what I have tried to convey to my colleagues is that design isn't a substitute for what we do already in public health. It's not a substitute for statistics. It's not a substitute for epidemiology uh, or economics. Um, it's a complement to those things because all of them have their shortcomings. And public health has got to go beyond the shortcomings of its traditional 
areas of study and has got to bring in new tools uh, to move the needle further. Let me give an example of that. We did a project several years ago at the Institute of Design about um, people recovering from heart disease where the recidivism rate is 50%. Um, and uh, when we looked at what they did, they um, tried to follow the regimen that they were given. But it turns out that eating with one's family is not a clinical or medicinal experience. It's a joyful experience and ties the family together. So people fell back into their old eating habits and eating habits and cooking habits and family ways. What the student did was stop treating it as a, stop thinking of the problem as something that needed to be treated, but bring the joy back into it. She made a cookbook, digital cookbook, that allowed people to pull ingredients onto their plate. You could see the plate, size them. You could see the calories and fat going up and down as she sized it. Uh, it expanded the repertoire of meals. Most people eat 15, have 15 recipes they repeat or fewer. This expanded that, made it joyous, so much so that people who didn't have heart problems wanted to use it as a cookbook. So how do you flip it from something that needs to be treated to something that works on the joyful side of life? And by the way, the treatment gets better. Tell us a bit about how in practice you get to these results. I mean, these stories sound fantastic and they make a lot of sense. Um, but what is the process of, you know, f f identifying that this is the actual problem or the, the obstacle that you need to overcome? On small projects, you start by looking at what the user's experience is, both good and bad, and think of ways of accomplishing the goals by amplifying throughout the amplification of the positive experiences. On larger projects, things at the scale that public health often deals with or hospital deals with, you not only look at user experience, but you look at the organizational strategy, the organization operations, and the offerings, as well as user experience. And you find a new way to create more value for the organization, maybe the hospital, by changing the operations or changing the offering and you're also creating more value for the end user. It's looking at the whole view of the problem rather than a slice, which is what gets us into problems with people who insist we should be using evidence because when you look at the whole view, you've got too many variables to land on something that's statistically that's significant. Yeah. Ishish, there's a lot of talk in the medical field about how hospitals have moved away from serving the actual patient. It sounds like design could help with this problem? Is that how you think about it? Is, is there an application? If you think about where healthcare is today, let's pick hospitals since you brought up hospitals. An American hospital today looks not that different from an American hospital 100 years ago. I mean, there's new technology, uh, new training. Sure, all of that is different. But the fundamental design concept behind what it means to take care of somebody, how you deliver it, all of that has remained uh, more or less the same. Um, so yes, medicine's gotten, there's more money in it, it's gotten away from some of its traditional values, and, uh, 
But the bottom line is that there's some fundamental aspects of, of medicine that haven't changed at all. And what I think is probably the most exciting application, one of the more exciting applications, um, is to kind of reconceive what is hospital care, um, how you would design physical spaces for healing. Right now it's designed as designed for, you know, sort of for convenience of doctors and nurses. And by the way, let me tell you, as a person who practices in hospitals, it's not even all that convenient for doctors or nurses. Um, so I, one area where I think there's a lot of opportunity for design is um, to go into physical spaces where people receive care and think about what we're trying to achieve in those areas, um, how we're trying to promote healing and rest and wellness, and how do you redesign the space how do you redesign the workflow? Um, and, and that approach, I think there are few places starting to think about that, but that's a massive opportunity for design. Um, but you know, what, one of the things that I've come to learn over the last year is in almost every complex problem we look at, um, there's a very big role for design. And I think certainly healthcare and hospital care is, at the, for me, uh, near the top of that list. What are some other areas that you think are... Right, like if you could apply Patrick to three problems, where, yeah. where would you know where would his team go? So things that have a big behavioral component, medication non-adherence, as we like to use the term, is a terrible term. Uh, but when people don't do what we tell them to do, th that is a huge component of moving public health forward. And I feel like uh, that's a place where we've done uh, where design can be enormously useful. Um, another area is when you think about. Uh, things that have a very large structural uh, component. So what do I mean by that? Um, things like road traffic injuries, probably the number one cause of death and disability among young people in the globe. Uh, you know, it, it, it's such a complex problem, and it's so begging for design, not because design will solve it, right? One of the things I've come to appreciate from, from Patrick is that design is rarely looking for solutions. And one of his lines, which I love and quote liberally, always with attribution, is he says, you know, it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. And it turns out John Maynard Keynes had that phrase first. Oh, he did. But we'll use it. Okay, I'm, I'm calling it a Pat Patrick Whitney phrase. <laughs> but it's really helpful because we always are looking for solutions in public health. And what this does is in things that are complex and structural, like road traffic injuries, very behavioral, like getting people to take their TB meds, um, very physical space oriented. In those instances, uh, it strikes me that design has a lot to offer, not in solving it, but moving the ball forward in a meaningful way so that people are much better off. A big part of what design does is it changes the questions you ask rather than come up with an automatic answer. So let's talk a little bit about the behavioral health component, which has been a part of public health forever, right? Yeah. It's always, public health has always been about how do we change people's behavior. How is design different, and, and how do you not get in trouble with the people who've been doing this for a really long time? Yeah, so one of the things we've learned in, in public health is behavior change is hard, right? And that's a sort of a first thing that people say, changing people's behavior is hard, and it is hard. Um, and I think we try things like we give people incentives. We, uh, behavioral economics has made, obviously, huge inroads in trying to understand how people make decisions and how they think. Um, one of the things that I've come to, I think, appreciate is that economics has a certain sort of traditional models of rationality of how humans behave. And every time humans don't behave in those ways, we think people are being irrational, and then we think about how to like basically beat them up so that they could be a bit more rational. 
my experience with design, and Patrick, who's obviously the expert here, would may have a different take, is that design takes people for, uh, where they are, doesn't e immediately assign a value judgment like you're making a bad decision, you're being irrational, you're not taking your meds, you're smoking, you're a bad person. Gets rid of all of that. Begins with, where are you? What's going on? You're making the decisions you're making. And then how do we help you redesign your life so you make decisions that are better for you? It's a very different approach. Um, and I wouldn't say it's completely antithetical to, to what other people have done. People in, in public health have tried that. I think this just augments and supplements some of those. And just to emphasize, one of those points is design will accept that people are irrational and not try and get them to be rational. Yeah. I love that because we are. We are. <laughs> we are. It, turns it turns out. Or also, as your example earlier showed, like we might not have the full picture, so we. It's yeah. a very rational choice to save your child from being shot and put the asthma care later. Yes. If those are your two options, we yes. just may not be seeing both of those. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's also talk a little bit about what what are some of the limitations. Where should you know people not be confused about problems or, or ways that design cannot be helpful? There are lots of problems which aren't behavioral, and there are lots of parts of problems which are not behavioral or related to culture. And when there are when there's evidence about what to do in those areas, and you're not venturing into the unknown fuzzy area of people's daily lives, you don't want design to have much say in those problems. You don't want designers to actually make the vaccine to do the... That would be a mistake. <laughs> yeah, that or if you're testing whether it's drug A or drug B is more efficacious kind of in, the, in a clinical trial, that's a classic scientific problem. Where or when you're looking at those large data sets that your team is looking at, and your question isn't how do we make people's health better, but how do we make hospitals in, the, in, in this situation operate more efficiently or effectively, designers might have a little bit to contribute to that, but I, I can't think of what that would be right now. So as a journalist who's covered you know, global health problems um, for, for a long time, I was struck by the initial idea of design coming into the picture because a lot of the the issues that I see as a reporter where, where I see things at the very end when, when they try to hit the ground and when you see if the you know, implementation is working and if an approach is working, you see all the things that people didn't think about, right? And you see sort of the cultural mismatch and you see um, that bigger picture that you were mentioning earlier where design helps you see the hole in the wall, right? And, and not just the immediate thing that you talked about, which is sort of what, what got me excited about it. Ashish, like, are you thinking about it in those same ways where we're like, right, we get to the, we, we have the vaccine, but then we really have the problem. And Yeah, almost every, you know, so one of the, one of the, the public health problems, crises that have, has really had the, had very profound influence on how I think about public health problems is the Ebola outbreak of West in West Africa in 2014, 2013 to 2015. And you know, here's a disease we'd seen it 20 some odd times before. Um, it's a disease where we actually know how to treat people, and in, in a good health system, the mortality rate should be five percent, ten percent, maybe even zero percent. Um, and yet, we saw what happened in West Africa, where thousands, eleven thousand people died. And it was a failure on so many different levels. 
And, uh, and what was interesting is in retrospect, it all seems obvious. Um, the issues around trust, the issues around um, communication. Um, and so one of the things I've often thought about, and by the way, here's the craziest part of it. Um, there was an entire system designed to counter exactly these kinds of problems. It was very thoughtfully crafted, and then none of it worked. None of it got implemented in the right way. And so one of the things I've thought a lot about is how do we make sure these things don't happen again um, when they keep happening? And part of it is taking a much more proactive approach to identifying these problems. So in retrospect, you can say, well, the problem was trust. People didn't trust the authorities. Sure. Um, but if we could have prospectively gone in with a, with a more of a design approach um, and understood how people lived and how they felt about different kinds of things, one of the hardest things initially was getting people to change their burial practices. Because that was a major source of transmission. Well, you had to understand why burial practices were important, what they signified to people, and why somebody coming in with a moon suit saying, don't bury your dead this way, the way you've been doing it for thousands of years, may not immediately work. Um, those are the kinds of things where I have come to believe that if we can be much more proactive with design, we can make a lot of progress. Um, and so, as Patrick said, no, it's not the end-all, be-all. Of course it is, and nothing is. Um, but it's a very important tool uh, in our in our very important kind of you know arrow in our quiver now that we have to learn how to use more effectively uh, to move the ball forward. There's, there's an additional aspect to this that Michelle Williams, the dean of the public health school, talks about, which is being focused on solutions. And design does focus on solutions. We we don't keep track of the data in our projects. We don't build a body of information in our projects. One of the things I'm hoping to learn about here is how to do that. Uh, how to build that body of information? How to build that body of information as we're doing design projects. But now, for now, time being, we're focusing on solutions. Those solutions are good because we can get to them faster if we're not worried about the science that might be behind it. But I also believe, this is a conjecture, but I think I believe that these solutions can provide a new, a second base for research in public health. Whereas now young researchers look to solid bodies of research to build their research on so they've got stuff to work with. What if, in addition, there was a base for research which was solved problems, but you didn't know why they worked? You knew it worked, but you didn't know why. You could imagine a group of scientists jumping all over that and rapidly coming up with principles that make sense because you're starting with the fact that it worked. When you start with research questions, you may research something and build science, but it's not leading to something that works. Exactly. Ashish, do you want to put that in context for us, right? The, the terms implementation science have been thrown around. About a decade ago, we started to realize there was so much implementation and nobody was actually evaluating and thus finding out what works and what doesn't in global health and why. Mm -hmm. Like, Yeah, so, you know, it, it, right, there is this, there's this massive gap um, between, well, there are two things. There's a massive gap between what we know is the right answer and how and what we do. That's the whole behavioral stuff that we've spent a bunch of time talking about. But then there's also this huge problem of we see people do things successfully, things that work, and we don't understand why they work. 
And so, so there is this new field of implementation science. And, um, and it's very, I think, early days. There are people, uh, certainly at the Chan School, who are working on this, or uh, people. But I've always believed that implementation science is an area where um, design can be potentially very helpful in, under- in getting us to understand why did, why did intervention A work, but intervention B didn't. Because the problem is you, you do intervention A versus B. A works, B doesn't. Great. And then when you go to scale it, it often doesn't work out because you didn't understand why A worked, right? And so you didn't know what part you had to have with high fidelity as you went and customized it in other places. And it's that kind of detailed, messy stuff that we've got to figure out or we end up just not being able to scale things very effectively because we don't understand what's really critical and what you are allowed to sort of change and customize. I'm hoping design helps us with some of that work. Design does that in other fields uh, where they focus on the difference between the product and the touch points of the product. The product can be can work in some ways spectacularly well. Those are touch points that give the product its identity. And other things, it doesn't have to work so well. And knowing which touch points in the product or which touch points in a medical protocol are important is critical. Well, I, I'm thinking of a story, and I don't know if this gets at this, but um, a bunch of years ago, uh, a guy named Peter Pronovost uh, came up with a checklist for how to eliminate central line infections. These are infections, deadly, very expensive, that develop when people put in catheters into, uh, into large veins in the body. This is almost only used in the intensive care unit. Um, he developed a checklist. Uh, a tool wrote about this checklist um, and it got the infection rate down to zero. And we used to think you could cut the infection rate to a certain sum number. Peter's checklist got it to zero at Hopkins. And everybody said, oh, that's Hopkins. You can do it at Hopkins, but you can never do this more broadly because Hopkins is so different. And he went and implemented it in the state of Michigan across 50 hospitals. And about 35 hospitals got to zero and stayed at zero. And so that was impressive. New England Journal paper, lots of excitement. But what's interesting is I always, was, I always wondered what happened to the other 15. And why did 35 make it and 15 didn't? 35 seems very impressive, certainly good enough that your statistics look great and you end up in the New England Journal. And what he and others have basically come to discover, but took a bunch of years and a lot of going back, is that you had a checklist. The problem with this checklist was that doctors didn't want to follow the checklist. Doctors like, I don't need the checklist. I'm a doctor. And... What happened at Hopkins was Peter Pronovos had tremendous amount of social power because everybody knew him. He was the chief quality officer. They loved him. So when he implemented it, nobody was willing to go up against the checklist because they were going up against Peter. When he went to Michigan, people in Michigan, most of the community hospitals didn't know him. So he didn't have that same power. He got hospital CEOs to tell their doctors that this is the checklist. And when you don't listen to the nurse who's implementing the checklist, you're essentially going up against me. And in about 35 hospitals, that happened. And in about 15 hospitals, the CEO didn't really communicate that. And then you know what what actually happened. So the bottom line is that implementation of things like checklists is hugely dependent on cultural change and is hugely dependent on sometimes strong-arming people, sometimes setting up very clear expectations and boundaries. It's that cultural stuff uh, that we haven't paid as much attention to in public health. And it's interesting because I suspect 
that if you had done sort of a design analysis at Hopkins, you could have figured out that part of what led to the success was people appreciated and understood who Peter was. And then you had to figure out how do we replicate and clone Peter at all those other 50 hospitals in Michigan. Can't clone them. We don't have that. Our technology on cloning isn't so good. But the point is you've got to come up with a substitute. I think we could have predicted that if we had applied design early. We didn't. And so we had to learn it 10 years later. But socializing his reputation and even him might have gone some ways to get that up to 40 or yeah. 45. Yeah. What do you mean by socializing? Well, rather than the CEO saying, ordering them to follow the nurse's uh, statements of the checklist, uh, build the respect for Peter in those docs that he, that is similar to the respect that he had at Hopkins. If they knew, if, if they didn't know who he was, tell him who he is and have him meet him and have a drink with him and go to a seminar with him so that they had the same respect. You know, most people want to do the right thing. It's the chaos of daily life, whether it's work or learning or family life, that keeps you from doing the right thing every time you're supposed to do it. So what you want to try to do is, rather than beat people up to do the right thing, is figure out what they're doing and build your, your protocol and your goals into what they do. Well, I was about to ask, this is one of the major criticisms of bringing the design approach to these types of complicated um, problems, because it's easy to design an iPhone, right, and, and make it very user-friendly. Um, it is much harder to get people to do some of the things that don't fit so much into their... Yeah, but let's go back to the student who did the cookbook. That cookbook was so fun to use. It expanded your diet options. It was easier to use in a regular cookbook. Uh, the people without heart disease wanted to use it, and people with heart disease were thrilled with it. So you would you say that you believe that you can get people to, I mean, we've seen it with smoking, right? People have stopped smoking, or sure. a lot of them have. We should write a book called The Joy of Health, <laughs> Yeah, well, The Joy of Medicine. Well, this is what I was going to say, right, is, look, I'm new to design, so I'm just back. I still use very kind of basic examples. But when I think back to Steve Jobs talking yeah, about iPhone, he always used the sort of notion of this being a delight, this being something fun to do, this being delightful to do. We don't talk about delight in public health or in clinical medicine. We're like, you must take this medicine, or you must cut out salt in your diet. And boy, life is much, much harder when you have to do a lot of things you must do. Life is a lot easier if you can do things that are delightful to do. In fact, you'll only adopt a few things that you must do. Right. And the others are just too much. Too much. How many must-dos can you do in a day? Right. The answer is a couple, and then leave me alone. Um, and what I've really enjoyed about watching Patrick think about problems is he takes things that feel like must-dos and tries to turn them into delighted to do these things. Uh, look, again, we don't want to be Pollyannish about this. It's not going to be super easy. We're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to be able to get smoking cessation to be a delightful thing. It's hard. People are addicted to nicotine. Um, but we've got to take a different approach to a lot of these problems. Just hammering people over the head with things they have to do to improve their health just doesn't work. If you were to look at the opioid crisis right now, Patrick, what do you think you would see? That's a hard one. Uh, I have a wild idea that it could well be, it's probably wrong, 
but uh, I'll try it on you. Um, I suspect that some percentage of the people, think the Midwest where I've just moved from, uh, some, the opioid addicts there are turning to it because life is miserable. Their jobs are going away. Uh, they're stopping making cars and they're being Walmart greeters. Fraction of the pay, fraction of the prestige. And they don't see a happy future. Suicide rates are going up. It's not just opioids that are the symptom of this. There's an organization in Detroit called Recovery Park. They found eight acres of, 80 acres of contiguous land, uh, land contiguous to downtown Detroit, dedicated to food. Two-acre greenhouse, tilapia farms, uh, schools for teaching restaurant workers how to be restaurant workers, how to, treat, how to teach kids how to be restaurant workers. It's all dedicated to food, which is, food is one of the joyful things in life. What if we took the Recovery Park, which is, by the way, named Recovery Park because they employ drug addicts and alcoholics who are recovering. It's the only people they'll employ. And the founder of it is a trader who is addicted to cocaine. What if we took the ideas of Recovery Park and replicated them so that there were these people doing something joyful, making food rather than greeting people at Walmart um, or being unemployed, uh, contributing to society, making a little money, um, doing something creative. Um, I can't believe that we wouldn't get some number of people to be eased off opioids. And even if we didn't, even if the thing failed, we've got more jobs in the Midwest which needs them, doing good things and providing more food into the food deserts in so many of those cities. Mm -hmm. So rather than studying it, the design approach would be to give it a try. You, you, I think it passes the test of not doing any harm. Um, and uh, it would be though, a good thing. Though I think, as a public health person, I would like to study it. There's no reason we should. And we would love you to study it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can do that, too. <laughs> just two reflections on, on this story. First, what Patrick first told me about Recovery Park, um, I think it was on a Saturday morning, maybe, we were having a conversation, and you described this. And I hung up the phone and walked into the kitchen and found my 12-year-old um, with one of her friends, and they were baking up a storm. Like, they were baking a cake, and, and I watched the joy that they had. And I have to tell you, my own approach to cooking is, like, what's the least I have to cook to get <laughs> enough nutrition and so I can keep going? Um, I'm probably a bad example of this. But the point is, Spoken cooking... Like a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> cooking, baking are joyful activities. Yes. And we don't think about joy so much in, in how we think about helping people live better, healthier lives. Um, we think of joy as some kind of side product and not a means by which you help people live healthier, better lives. And, um, and you've helped me see that. And you've helped me see that when you describe this. Um, the other thing which I love about how you approach almost every problem, Patrick, is you don't begin by looking for villains. Um, I find this to be a huge problem in public health, where we often begin by saying, Oh, the problem is pharma. Oh, the problem is the government. Oh, the problem is 
people who won't take their medicines. And you don't begin by saying, who's the villain who's creating this public health problem? And how do I shut them down? Um, you begin by looking at the problem as it is and saying, how do we make this better? It's a really useful framework that I think could apply uh, to a lot of public health issues. That's interesting. I never noticed it, but it relates to something I have noticed, which is uh, our medical system and even more so our school system are the two of the very few systems or organizations that Henry Ford would recognize if he came back in a time machine yeah. now and looked at them. We, we think of people as material, both kids and patients. We think of processing them. We think of quality checks along the way. We never think of making them happier. It's not in the curriculum goals. Of, or, nor in the medical goals. Right. It's so a problem. Fewer villains, more happiness, and more empathy. It's a great note to end on. Thanks to both of you. Pleasure. Thank you. It's just Thank That was a conversation between Stephanie Friedhoff, Ashish Jha, and Patrick Whitney about design and public health. If you want to learn more about the collaboration between Jha and Whitney, we'll have much more information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. And if you are a fan of the show, please rate and review the podcast. That will help more people find us.